Um, during my, my preparation for this message, I read a sermon from George Whitfield on 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. It's the, the central verse of this passage where Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. George Whitfield was an evangelist during the 18th century, and he was used powerfully by the Lord in England as well as in the American colonies. He would preach to English coal miners with their, whose, whose faces were black with soot, uh, but, but they, would be, they would have clean streaks on their faces where, where tears would roll down their cheeks as they, as they repented of their sins. During the, the first great awakening in America, many thousands of people came to the Lord under the ministry of George Whitfield. Whitfield was uniquely gifted by the Lord for this ministry. It was reported, reported that his voice could be heard over five miles away. At one revival meeting in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin, who was actually there, estimated that over 30,000 people had gathered to hear Whitfield preach and that they all heard him clearly without a microphone. But why would so many people gather to listen to Whitfield and why were so many converted under his ministry? Whitfield was, was of, of short stature and he was, was very cross-eyed. He wasn't one of the, the beautiful people in the eyes of the world. Now, some of Whitfield's sermons are, are more noteworthy than others, but, but this particular sermon, this one on 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, didn't have, to, to, to my thinking, particularly deep insights on the verse. It, it wasn't particularly intellectually stimulating. The message was actually quite simple. But why did the Lord use George Whitfield? Because the Lord was pleased to use George Whitfield. Yes, he was a gifted speaker, but he was a man who kept the who kept Christ and the cross central. He was a man who relied on the Lord's power. The same is true today. Some of you have been listening recently to David Platt. David Platt has is, is been the pastor of the church at Brook Hills, Alabama for the past eight years since he was 28. And Christianity Today labeled him as the youngest megachurch pastor ever. But the moniker betrays the magazine's ignorance of, of church history. C.H. Spurgeon became the pastor of New Park Street Chapel at the age of 20. But anyway, Platt does have a, a big ministry with over 4,000 people attending his church every Sunday. He mobilizes churches for, for worldwide missions, and he's been involved in evangelism in the Sudan, in Indonesia, in, in New, Nepal, just to name a few places. And David Platt's message on Romans 9 at the Southern Seminary Chapel in the fall of 2008 was the most challenging message that I have ever heard. He began by, by quoting Romans 1 to 8 from memory. 
from memory. But he wasn't just speaking the words of Romans 1 to 8. He was preaching Romans 1 to 8. And then he taught from Romans chapter 9. And in that sermon, the Lord did a powerful work in my heart. David Platt had unction. It was an old-fashioned word, that, which means essentially that the Holy Spirit worked powerfully through his preaching. This was one of those sermons in which everybody filed out of the chapel in silence, each person alone with God. And I went straight to a friend's house in, in order to debrief. I, I had to reevaluate, reevaluate the plans that I had made for myself and my ministry, and I had to lay them on the altar afresh. But why are so many people convicted by the preaching of David Platt? He's young. He has a slight speech impediment. Why does the Lord use David Platt? Because the Lord is pleased to use David Platt, a man who, yes, has a command of the Bible, but he is a man who keeps Christ and the cross central and relies on the Lord's power. In the passage before us this morning, Paul shows the Corinthians how he keeps Christ and the cross central and relies on the Lord's power. Again, we see man's wisdom and power contrasted with God's wisdom and power. The Corinthians were dividing over, over this preacher and that preacher, and some of them had been seduced by, by the eloquent speech and the worldly wisdom of their contemporaries. And Paul and his simple message didn't impress them. So Paul reminds them of the centrality of the gospel. So this morning from, from 1 Corinthians 2 verses 1 to 5, we'll, we'll see, first of all, the simple truth in verses 1 and 2. The weak man in verses 3 and 4. And the powerful God in verse 5. And, and I'd like us to see how at each point, Paul says that his ministry is not something, but it is something else. Each, each point has a, has a negative and a positive side to it. So first of all, the simple truth, verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with, with lofty speech or wisdom. Now the and here is linking this passage with how he finished in chapter 1. Don't let the, the chapter division confuse you. This is part of the same thought that Paul developed in chapter 2, where he said that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but the power of God to those who are being saved. The world doesn't get it. They won't get it. They can't get it. They can't get it. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Spiritually discerned. You will not understand the truth of God with the eyes of the flesh. 
The Holy Spirit needs to reveal these truths with your spirit, to your spirit, so that you will be changed by them. It's not just just assent to to a series of, of doctrinal truths. This is the transforming power of the truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, when I came to you, he's referring to his first visit to Corinth. If you please turn with me to in your Bible to, to Acts chapter 18, which describes Paul's first time going to Corinth. Notice that, that first he met Aquila and Priscilla. These were Jews who'd been exiled from Rome, and, and, they, and Paul worked with them as a tent maker. And as was, was his usual practice, he started at the synagogue, testifying to Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they rejected his message, he then turned his attention to the Gentiles. He literally went next door to the house of Titius Justus. Then Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, and his whole family got saved. And then many Corinthians, many other Corinthians believed and were baptized, and the Corinthian church was born. But the church wasn't born through the power of Paul. The church was born through the power of God. Paul didn't come with eloquence. He didn't come with eloquence. It's not that he couldn't be eloquent. He intentionally chose not to be. There's a method of parlance that, that utilizes erudite vocabulary foreign to the vernacular to, to elicit deference from the unlettered. This is what Paul didn't do. This is what Paul didn't do. What good is it if your message can't be understood by your hearers? It's, it's useless. And I know that, that I have to, to guard against this in my own preaching. And I know that I fail. No, I don't, I don't shy away from, from theological terminology or from the original languages. Sometimes I believe that, that certain words are helpful for us to understand. But if I try to impress you with my vocabulary, I am drawing attention away from Christ. I'm drawing attention away from Christ. And, and I know that I have failed in this. May the Lord help me to point only to Him. We talked about this last week. May, may you come away from, from my preaching, not thinking about John Tucker at all, but thinking about how great Christ is and how amazing that it is that God would use a weak and foolish man like John Tucker to proclaim His glories. Paul didn't come with eloquence. Paul didn't come with wisdom. It's not that Paul wasn't wise. Next to Solomon, I believe that, that Paul was, was the wisest man who ever lived. Look at, at verses 6 and 7. It says, He did impart wisdom among the mature, the secret and the hidden wisdom of God. But, but Paul's wisdom wasn't worldly wisdom. He, he didn't use human logic to try to debate people into the kingdom of heaven. If human logic was able to, to convince people of their need for Christ, somebody could come along with another logical argument and unconvince them. 
Now, there are all kinds of teachers in our day that, that stack up logic and evidence in an attempt to save people, but no amount of evidence can ever, can ever produce repentance that leads to salvation. It's not that Paul wasn't educated, quite the opposite. Paul was educated at the feet of the renowned Rabbi Gamaliel. He was trained in the scriptures and the Jewish religion from a young age. If anybody could have confidence in the flesh, it was Paul. But he says that he counted it all as loss for the sake of Christ. He counted it all as rubbish in order to gain Christ and be found in him. Philippians 3, 4 and 8. Paul knew that those who were in Christ were in Christ because of God. Chapter 130. So he did not, to need, he did not need to use any technique to proclaim the gospel. The simple truth was enough. And so Paul didn't come with eloquence. He didn't come with wisdom. He came instead with Christ. He came instead with Christ. He says in verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul preached Christ. He intentionally preached Christ. Tom Schreiner says that the passion of Paul's life, the foundation and capstone of his vision, and the animating motive of his mission was the supremacy of God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw this from, from Acts chapter 18, that, that, that he showed the Jews from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And then when they, when they rejected his message, he turned to the Gentiles. Now this happened repeatedly, but the message stayed the same. Whether it was to kings or to commoners, the message always stayed the same. Paul preached Christ and him crucified. Paul knew the reality of John 14, 6, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. Paul knew the truth of John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But it's not just to know about Jesus, but to know Jesus. Not just a set of facts about Jesus, but to know him personally. To have a saving relationship with him. This is eternal life. Paul preached Christ, and he knew that this was enough. But he also knew that you can't preach Christ without preaching the cross. Christ must suffer. Christ must die. This was a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but it is the gospel, the power of God to those who are called to those who are being saved. That the Son of God Himself, 
that the Son of God himself would receive the punishment that we deserve and that he would give us his righteousness is so incredibly profound that only God himself could have devised the plan. Yet this message is simple enough for even a child to understand. Now many preachers in our day preach a a so-called gospel that has been sanitized, that has been gutted of the gory reality of the cross. People don't want a bloody religion. This worldly wisdom has has produced the seeker-sensitive movement. A movement that 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 makes tries to make the gospel more more palatable, so that those in the world can receive it. It, it has produced the social gospel that that has has made the mission of the church not to save the lost, but has has made it social justice and reaching out to the poor. It has produced the emergent church that, that, that has rejected propositional truth in favor of, of the relativism of our day where, where each person's interpretation is equally valid and does not rely on, on what the Lord intended the passage to mean. It has produced the so-called biblical patriarchy movement that, that focuses on external laws rather than on the change of hearts that is required. Now, all of these things are important. All of these things are, are necessary parts of the teaching of Christ and the cross, but we preach these things because of Christ and the cross. Anytime we, we veer away from that, it, it, it is going to produce something that is, is less than the cross. It's going to produce whatever else is coming down the pipes that passes itself off as Christianity. The cross is the crux. The cross is the center of everything. Any exhortation, any encouragement, any doctrine that does not have the cross at the center is missing the mark. Any morality, any motivation, any methodology that does not lead you to the cross is leading you astray. I teach about providence, God's sovereignty over everything, because Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. Colossians 1.17 I teach about holy living because I want us to live lives that demonstrate that that in Christ we have been crucified to the world and the world to us. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I teach about marriage because I, I, I want marriages to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church, the wives submitting to their husbands and, and husbands honoring, or, and honoring the wives and, and cherishing them just as Christ does the church, Ephesians 5, to 33 I teach about parenting because I want to see children raised in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 4. 
I teach about church unity because I want the church to reflect the love of Christ in giving himself for her. John 13, 34 and 35. And because you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. I teach about evangelism and missions because through Christ, God has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Colossians 1.20 Christ and the cross must be central to everything. To everything. And as soon as it ceases to be the center, we are moving astray. God chose to deliver this message through the weak man. The weak man, verses 3 and 4. And we have a little of the, of the, in the way of the physical description of Paul in Scripture. Uh, there's a document that's being circulated that's, that has been since for, for almost 2,000 years that is called the Acts of Paul that claims to provide a, a physical description of Paul says that, that Paul was a man uh, small of stature with bald head and crooked legs in a good state of, of body with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness. For now he appeared like a man and now he had the face of an angel. Now, now overall, this does not seem to be a very flattering description. But John Polhill points out that these are the stock pictures of desirable characteristics in ancient Mediterranean culture. And that Caesar Augustus was actually described as having the same physical traits. These things were actually valued. And maybe I should have lived back then. But don't be shocked because, because what is considered beautiful in our culture would have been seen and is seen by, as repulsive in many cultures around the world and throughout the ages. But either way, we can't take anything from the so-called Acts of Paul as authoritative. It's pseudepigraphal. Now, that's one of those big words that, that I think you should probably know. It's something that it's a it's it's a book that, that claims to be part of the biblical canon, but has been rejected as heretical. Brothers and sisters, this, the scriptures alone are our authority on such things. And the scriptures do provide enough of a, of a description of Paul in any way that matters. Look at verses three and four of, of this passage. And I was with you in, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The Corinthians weren't particularly impressed by Paul the man. Now, perhaps Paul the man wasn't very impressive. In 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 10, 10, he, he quotes them saying that, that, that his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. So Paul's bodily presence may have been weak, but he had God-given authority. 
And he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.1 that he was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. They said virtually the same thing in in 2 Corinthians 1.1, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Yet, Paul was with them in weakness and fear. And again, he's, he's referring to the events of Acts chapter 18, where he had stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. And the Jews weren't satisfied just to reject him. They actually came after him and and then brought him before Gallio, the the proconsul, in an attempt to silence him. But in God's providence, Gallio ignored their charges. And they, they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him too. Paul must have been afraid and tempted to quit because in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, God told him in a vision not to be afraid and not to be silent, that no one could harm him, for he had many people in the city. Now, from a human perspective, it it makes sense for Paul to have some temptation to fear. No sane person would enjoy the kind of treatment that the Apostle Paul received. We spoke about this last week from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Please, please turn with me again there. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at the list of things that he suffered from, from verses 16 and following. He was imprisoned. He was whipped five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked three times in constant danger, in constant anxiety. Paul was not Superman. He felt pain. He knew fear. But by God's grace, he stayed cross-centered. He didn't just preach Christ crucified to others. He preached Christ crucified to himself. To himself. The servant is not above his master. If Christ was shamefully treated, why shouldn't Christ's servants expect the same treatment? So Paul was thankful for those things. He was thankful because they revealed his weakness. They revealed his weakness. He continues in chapter 12 describing a man in Christ who was, being, who was caught up into the third heaven, who was caught up into paradise, who heard things which, which a man may not repeat. Now Paul here was speaking of himself. He was the one that had received that revelation. He says in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, nobody knows for sure what the thorn in the flesh was. Some think it was temptation, or his enemies, or poor eyesight, or physical weakness. Now, he does speak of a bodily ailment in Galatians 4.13, but we can't know whether he was referring to the same issue here. 
But with this particular thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan, Paul pleaded with the Lord three times to deliver him. But the Lord's reply, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul was thankful because his weakness shifted the attention away from him to the power of God. Maybe you are, are pleading with the Lord to remove the thorn from your flesh. But you can know, fellow Christian, that God's grace is sufficient, that his power is made perfect in weakness. So are you thankful? Are you thankful for the things that reveal your weakness? Now, the Lord is not the author of sin, and you are responsible to fight against sin with everything that is in you. But God is glorified for his grace when he forgives you for that sin yet again. God is glorified when he strengthens you to overcome that sin that you have struggled with for many years. God is glorified when he does in you what you could never do on your own. When he enables you to, to love your difficult brother, to serve your sinful husband, to be diligent for a demanding boss, to reject sinful peer pressure, to proclaim the gospel to that beggar, when you are tempted, when you fail, when your weakness is exposed, God's power is magnified. God's power to forgive and God's power to save. Satan's goal when he tempts you is not just to make you sin. Satan is trying to drive a wedge between you and God. So Satan first comes to you as the tempter. And then when you fall for the temptation, he becomes your accuser. But in Christ, we have an advocate we have an advocate before the throne of God. The blood of Christ pleads for us. So we can say, this is one place you can agree with the devil, you can say, yes, I am wicked. Yes, I am a sinner. But like John Newton said, I know two things. I am a great, save, I am a great sinner and I have a great savior. I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. And so Paul was thankful for the things that revealed his weakness because they revealed that he, Paul had a great Savior. 
And Paul wasn't with them in physical strength. He wasn't with them in human boldness or human wisdom, but he came in something infinitely better. He came in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The Corinthians needed needed reminding. They sought proof that Christ was speaking in him. So he reminded them in 2 Corinthians 13, 3 and 4, that God is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. No man could do what Paul did. The, the Corinthians had felt like, like they could, had, could move on from the gospel to bigger things. I'm ashamed to admit that there was a time in my Christian life when I felt like, the, like I could move on from the gospel to bigger things. Where the gospel became like a been there, done that. Is that the case for you? Whenever we yawn before the gospel, whenever we have a ho-hum approach to the, to the gospel, we're revealing our lack of understanding of the gospel. We're revealing our weakness. We're re- revealing our need to be transformed by the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are just as desperate to be transformed by the gospel today as we were on that first day when we were saved. You can't move on from anything greater than the gospel because there is nothing greater than the gospel. No man could do what Paul did. Not even Samson's strength could drag people out of hell. Not even Solomon's wisdom could convince people to come to Christ. Not even David's leadership could lead people into heaven. God must work to save. Whenever anyone gets saved, it is a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The gospel is the power of God to those who are being saved. John Paul Hill describes Paul as one of the most influential figures in all human history, Christianity's towering missionary and apostle. Yet he was a weak man, and God used this weak man to build the church, and God has been using weak men to build the church ever since. So finally, In verse 5, we see the powerful God, the powerful God. Paul here gives the reason for his determination to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. He says, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. As Schreiner explains, what, what troubles Paul is that devotion to various human ministers nullifies the cross of Christ, the very center of the gospel. This is the issue that Paul is addressing. This is why Paul is, is going through this discourse. 
because the Corinthians were dividing along the lines of mere men. Their focus on men was a distraction from the gospel. It was a distraction. And this worked both ways in the Corinthian church. Because they were measuring men by, by human standards and focusing on the qualities of preachers that they admired, they were drawn toward human wisdom and they were drawn away from a reliance on the power of God. And secondly, by judging Paul according to those standards, they rejected not only him, but also his message. Now let's look at this effect first. Paul was the one who had been used of the Lord to plant the church in Corinth. Even as a mere pastor, he would have God-given authority in the church. But Paul wasn't a mere pastor. He was an apostle. He didn't just proclaim the word of God. He wrote the word of God. To reject Paul was to reject the authority of God. To reject his message was to reject the word of God. Think again about the, the issues that they were facing in the Corinthian church. Jealousy, pride, sexual immorality, lawsuits, idolatry, drunkenness. All of these went directly against everything that Paul had taught. Because all of them go directly against the proclamation of Christ and the cross. And they felt that if they maligned the man, they could malign the message. The weakness of man is never an excuse for rejection of the message. And the same is true today. If somebody talks to you about your sin, yes, they have a responsibility to come to you with love and grace. But what if they don't? What if they don't come to you with love and grace? Does that give you a right to reject what they are saying? Not a chance. If a police officer is, is mean to you when he pulls you over for speeding, does that undermine his authority to give you a ticket? Does that make you any less guilty of speeding? Not at all. The weakness of man is never an excuse. No human being can ever come to you with a perfect heart and with the perfect words. You need to ask the question, is what they're saying true? Not, is the way that they said it acceptable to me? And Paul, the main point here is that, that could anyone add to the power of God? Could anyone add to the power of God? Think about it. What could you possibly add? What could I possibly add to the power of God? Last fall, I had to dig a six-foot hole in the front yard of the parsonage. And it took all day with a pick and shovel. 
Why would I want to dig the hole with a teaspoon? But if somebody offered me the use of their backhoe, I would be a fool to reject it. But we aren't merely talking about doing the, the difficult here. These are things, what, what, what we are called to do is not merely difficult. We are talking about doing the impossible. We can't do it by our strength. Now we can create something that, that looks on the outside like what we're trying to create. We, we can dress up our family and, and make it look nice on the outside. When, when Jane was, was growing up, she, was, she was, was under the teaching of a, of a particular ministry that, that was, was really focused on the externals. And, and people would, would come and ask Jane's parents, how can I get my, my family to look like your family? As though there was this set of, this formula, this set of things that you could do, external things to, to transform. Now, by God's grace, it worked in Jane's family, and, and, and most of her siblings are, are saved. But we must address the heart. What is needed is not a change of behavior. What is needed is repentance. And that is a work of the Lord. So Paul wanted the Corinthians to be secure in the anchor of the soul. He wanted them to be secure in the steadfast love of the Lord. Why are you trying to make people repent by your wisdom and your strength? Why would you dig a hole with a teaspoon? Why not rely on the sovereign power of God? For many years, I, I was... By God's grace, I believe, faithful to, to share the gospel with some of my family members. But what I quickly did was, is I began to do it in my own strength, and I, and I began to use every opportunity to, to, to not exhort them from the Word of God, but to beat them with the Bible. And then I realized... That is not my responsibility to save my family members. My responsibility is by God's grace to speak a word of truth in due season and let the Lord do the saving. And by God's grace to live a life that reflects the gospel. So that those who are outside of Christ would be drawn to Christ as they saw the changes he was making in my life. Is your faith resting in the power of God? Or is it resting in mere men? Mere men will always let you down. Always. Why would you want your faith to rest anywhere else 
Poet Robbie Burns wrote, the best laid schemes of mice and men oft go awry and leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. Focusing on mere men will, will never deliver the joy that it promises, will always end in grief and pain. Men will fail you, and, and no, it is not an excuse, but when you are resting in the sovereign power of God, you will never fear anything ever again. May God do that work in our hearts. May he enable us to rest in his power and to know that we are resting in his power so that nothing will shake us. So that no storm can cause our house to fall. Let's pray together.